What's up? Welcome to Sweathead. I think within a couple of hours of this going live, we're going to have had about 200,000 listens or plays. I'm assuming it's mostly humans, but who knows? Maybe there are some robots listening as well. Uh, and if you've listened to a lot of the episodes, I think we're up to 100 and, I don't know, 115 or so, 110, 115. Uh, thanks for listening. It's been a fun experience, about a year and a half into this. Uh, I wish I could. I wish I had more statistics to share. Also, I'm currently in Amsterdam, just walking by the Jordan Canal. I could totally live in this city. It's walkable. It's first first time I'm here actually, but it's very walkable, and I love dense cities that aren't too corporate and cities you can walk through. Obviously, lots of bikes. It's quite chaotic with the bikes, and there are a lot of tourists here, but there's still also you hear a lot of Dutch on the streets too, so it doesn't seem like strictly a tourist city, but it's beautiful. We've got a little apartment near the canal, so just waking up and being able to see water and knowing it's there I find really calming. I don't know if that's just because I grew up in Sydney or it's just part of the human condition, but it's a, it's a beautiful thing. So yeah, we're passing about 200,000 listens on the podcast, and about half of those listens have come from the USA, 51%. And then we've got uh, England and Australia, I believe, one, two, and three. But like I said, I just don't get a huge amount of statistics. So the UK is about 20%, Australia is 12%, Canada is 4%, and then there's South Africa, Germany, New Zealand, Ireland, France, Netherlands. They're all at about like 1% or so. It's been a really fun experience. I've actually found someone to help edit the podcast. So this month I've been, I don't know if it's a test per se, but been trying to publish things while traveling uh, with the help of someone editing. So that's uh, taken some work off my plate because some of these episodes can take two to three hours to edit. Uh, and I do, I do want to push this harder. So I'm starting to think about either internships or paid positions for for this sweathead the podcast and the community because i know it can we can do more i get i can get a little distracted i'm pretty pretty okay at it but there are certain things from an operations point of view that i could get better at for sure and then you know to get more people's quotes out there and maybe even maybe even to compile little books at some point of the the main thoughts that have come from the interviews would be something that we that I'd be looking to do so look if you're interested just drop me a line mark m-a-r-k dot pollard p-o-l-l-a-r-d at mightyjungle.co not dot c-o-m mark dot pollard at mightyjungle.co yeah so did uh did Dublin did Copenhagen for a few days and then Dublin Copenhagen was still spun around by the jet lag a bit moody and then it rained it's like half the dot to it two out of the three days we were there I think and so didn't get to see it as much but I'm back there this weekend looking forward to that got a bit of work happening Dublin was cool caught up with family over there I think we had one of their best weather days this year and gosh Dublin's beautiful in good weather I'm sure it's beautiful when it's not good weather the streets were packed there were a lot of Italian students and Spanish students well students from Italy and Spain I think learning English there mostly Italians I mean thousands every street corner seem to be groups of 40 to 50 kids and then we did Vienna for a few days it was a bit rainy there 
and with the kids they're not super excited about seeing all the stuff that I would like to go see but we did have fun in the Prata I guess amusement park in between some rain that was kind of cool then we went out to Linz to see some family and obviously the highlights for my kids so far have just been hanging with cousins and just second cousins etc and uh, they're like why are we going to Amsterdam we don't know anyone there but we're loving it loving it before I get into some of the Q&A's which is what this episode is actually going to be about around Amsterdam I'll do a little bit of walking a bit of standing still there's a bit of traffic noise it's Sunday but there's a bit of, a bit of traffic noise where I am uh, the strategy supersizer mega class with Julian Cole we've got I think we've nearly sold out actually for London on the 31st of July uh, I haven't had too many emails about that but also I haven't been on the computer I have I've not had a lot of good access to Wi-Fi as well so I'm doing my best to stay on top of that but feel free if you've got questions about tickets etc let me know I will be back to work probably from next weekend well probably quote unquote then we are now looking at Sao Paulo around the 30th and the 31st of August stay tuned for to the internet for announcements about that and, and our email newsletters Sydney and Melbourne we're looking at 24th and 28th of October around those dates and then we are also going to do one more event in York on 4th of October at the same probably at the same venue that we've done that we've done the last two events we might squeeze another couple of events in before the year's end and I think as the year ends Julie and I will get together and work out what our schedule will be like for next year because we've had people fly in from everywhere and I know it's kind of cool to be able to fly in, come to a strategy event and then hang out in a city you might not get to visit often but we'll, I think because there's been such positive interest and support that we'll try to lay out a, a schedule maybe six months ahead of time and we're still testing things and if you've come thank you let us know how it's going we've been receiving emails from people who are applying these techniques and that, that we run through uh, if you want information go to bit.ly bit.ly forward slash strategy supersizer but you will need to capitalize the S at the start of strategy, at the start of super, and at the start of sizer. Also, Google it. <laughs> we'll probably do a proper website soon. So they're, they're the main things that are going on. Uh, if you're in the Sweathead Facebook community, if you're new to this podcast, uh, the, that community is really vibrant. You know, I keep hearing stories about people getting jobs, internships, uh, helping each other with uh, on crunch in crunch time and deadlines and it's really cool to see what's going on I think Facebook will continue to prioritize that group's interface so hopefully it'll get better it's a bit difficult to weigh around weigh into or to, to navigate at times but I know that there are people who are spending a lot of time gouging on the information that everyone's sharing uh, I, I love seeing people pop up from well any community really but that community and then writing or creating things uh, Eugene Huang, I don't have that. Inf- I don't have your name in front of me, but I'm pretty sure it's Eugene Huang. Just launched a compendium of strategy tools at SirStratalot.com. I think that's correct. Google those words if you're curious. Uh, it's a bit like what uh, Open Strategy was trying to do a few years ago as well. So it's just cool to see all these tools get out there online I've got like a list of ideas that I'm trying to get to and every time that people launch things I'm like oh oh but it's all good when you've got try to have an abundance mindset 
there's always more out there. There's always more. But anyway, go check out these those resources. All right, let's do uh, let's do some Q and A. I'm going to start off talking a little bit about introversion. I mean, I I do talk about introversion a little bit. I haven't read the, a lot of the most recent books and science on it. I know a lot of these ideas. People debate whether you're one thing or the other, where it's con- where, or whether it's context or environment dependent. You know, there are certain people when I'm around them that I get really really quiet. And if you see me on stage, that might surprise you. Um, but they're just certain environments, certain topics, certain types of people, certain usually domineering and emotional types of people that I just find really difficult to work with and I'll often just be quiet or I have to establish my boundaries knowing that in establishing my boundaries I'm actually inviting the conflict that maybe that they were trying to get to in the first place. Uh, the, the way that I, there's a few words actually that I'll talk about together and the definitions that I've come to understand. So introversion, I think a commonly accepted definition of that is it's someone who gets energy from within and when they spend a lot of time in other people's company or in other people's energy it can tire them out extroversion you tend to need to get energy from bouncing off other people and there's another word that I love this definition I came across a few years ago for the word intellectual intellectual just in Australia it's just growing when I grew up in Australia maybe it's changed it is a bit anti-intellectual in the way that the US can be a bit intellectual we have this thing called the tall poppy syndrome that every Australian knows about. But as I travel around the world, I realize a lot of people don't really know about it. When a poppy grows, when it gets tall, Aussies like to cut them off at their knees. So we're quite sarcastic. A lot of one-downmanship and a lot of the banter that we have with each other tries to keep each other in place. But it can also be kind of savage, actually. You know, every now and then if I'm around it for a long time, I'm like, you know, <laughs> I can do this, but I don't know if I want to do it anymore. Uh, but the point of uh, the word intellectual that I like, or the definition that I like, is that it's someone who likes to spend time with ideas more than people. And I wish I could remember the author who put those words together for me. It could have been in a book called Creators. Is there a... maybe last name is Johnson? Johnson, Johnson. Yeah, I think there's a book called Creators, and it looks at like the creative lives of people like Walt Disney... Balenciaga, all, all sorts of people. And I'm pretty sure in that book he talked about the idea of intellectuals being uh, people who prefer to spend time with ideas than people. Could be wrong, but either, either way, it's a useful definition, and if you haven't read that book, read it. He's, he looks at the creative lives of people who were super famous from a long time ago. A lot of them were semi-professional in, the, in their teenage years. You know, there's none of this. Got to discover myself, and then I, you know, I'll go to take a year off college, and then if I'm lucky enough to go to college, go to college, and it'll be a five, six-year thing, and then at 25, I'll do an internship. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the amazing thing with a lot of the most prolific people is that they were pretty much semi-professional at a young age. Whether it's Walt Disney and his drawings, or Balenciaga, and uh, and people in that fashion world who were. 12, 13, 14 years of age, sewing and cutting things and learning and doing apprenticeships. So anyway, trying to get into the topic of introversion, that was a little segue. So I've got a bunch of questions and thoughts from people, and I catch these on Instagram DMs. So feel free to just send me questions. I'm going to, when I get emailed and DM'd questions now, I'm going to do a better job of collecting them all. And then every now and then, maybe once a week or two, I'll put out a, a call for questions. I always appreciate you sharing your thoughts. If you don't want me to mention your name, and I'll just use the handles because it takes ages to bounce back and forth, especially on bad or bad or average Wi-Fi when I'm traveling around. Um, just say Anon. 
So here's the first one. By nature, I'm very introverted. I try to listen more than I speak and prefer to abstain from saying something unless I've thought it through. This trait, coupled with the fact that I'm extremely intimidated intimidated by all the talented, successful and extroverted people in my office, is making it hard for me to come out of my shell and form quality relationships with my coworkers. I feel this could really hurt my chances of getting a full-time position or even a good recommendation after the internship ends, regardless of how good the quality of my work is. As a fellow introvert, do you have any advice on how I could navigate this situation to stand out in a positive way? There's a lot there. You could break that into several, several pieces, to be honest. There's the preferring to abstain from saying something, unless you've thought it through. The sense of feeling intimidated by other people with bigger energy, more energy. Nervousness about not being able to develop quality relationships. Getting a job or a recommendation. So even if you took those four points and put them into your own kind of communications plan, which is what a lot of us, you know, your own strategy framework, those four points, how could you solve them? Above it is the belief that solving those four things will lead to a better job. And what you're trying to work out, I guess the challenge that you're trying to solve for yourself is how do you, how do you create a type of visibility in the company that you feel you can honor that's true to you you know which also might mean you need to change but you could take those four things and put them in some kind of framework and work out how to solve them separately whether you're introverted or extroverted or a bit of both which i think is most people visibility within your company can come in many forms you know it could be talking in meetings you if you're in the US, you do need to be seen to have an opinion and to be talking. You do. It doesn't have to be the same style. Maybe you work out how, what you might contribute before the meeting. Maybe you take notes during the meeting. Maybe you summarize the three key points from the past 30 minutes of discussion and you play a summary role. You do need to work out how to be active in conversations and not just an observer it's not always easy you know there's i have and i've talked about it i've been in meetings where sometimes in very big companies i get brought in as i've been brought in in as an employee in a like senior strategy role into a client that's very big but a department of that client that's not used to even having strategy or, or a planner and it's sometimes really hard to catch on to the conversation, especially if there's a lot of power in the room and people are subservient to that power. Because it can feel like anything you say if you're trying to get somewhere is challenging the person who's powerful, who just wants to talk at you. Which We see that, we see that a lot. So I think it's visibility within a company you've got to work out how to do it in a meeting it doesn't always have to be through voice it could be through taking notes from circulating them afterwards it could be creating a handful of useful like a summary of the research that you get to run through at the start you know and that type of thing is you're staging your interaction in the same way that what I'm doing right now this is me staging my interaction if I'm talking on a stage or in a room that's me staging my interaction because I do get tired jockeying in a group of five to ten people it, it just wears my brain down 
So that's how you can set yourself up in the room. There's things you can do before, during, and after meetings, for example, where you have some kind of visibility that doesn't always require you to use your voice. So, like, I mean, I gave you examples before. And then you might create initiatives in the company as well so that people know that you're working even if you're a little bit quiet. There could be social initiatives. Maybe own it. Do like a, <laughs> I don't know, social initiative for introverts. Work that out. Just own it. Publishing things online as you... I mean, you say that you're, you're in an internship now. It doesn't have to be that you're senior. Just, just publish things. And then other people do the talking for you. They want you to be in rooms. And then you might feel like there's less of a... Yeah, an, an obstacle or, or combat. It's less. It feels like it's less of a conflict-triggering feeling in you to express yourself. Uh, I would. I'd probably recommend this to everyone because it was. It's been good for me. I haven't done it recently, but stream of consciousness writing. Just write, write your thoughts, write your feelings, and the more that you can do that, maybe. And I've not read science on this, but maybe the more that you're in touch with what you think and feel and the more readily you can go to essentially your own sound bites. Developing relationships with people. Oh, actually, there's also a couple of different ways that people like to influence groups. One is, and even if you just take a simple or a simplistic binary in this case of formal and informal influencing, I'm more informal. I would walk things around a building before I'd finished them or as I was finishing them. I would usually not want to say, I've done it, here's the thing, is it right, do you like it? I probably have done that, but it's usually like, I've got two or three thoughts, what do you think? Little hand sketches, little memo, memo type documents, get people to add to them, involve them in the conversation. But again, that's because I'm a little bit introverted, I don't want to have to do that always in front of 10 people. One or two at a time is fine. And I'm using that paper, I guess, to stage my interaction, now that I think of it. I'm like, here's my stuff. Or it's up on the wall. What do you think? So you can use your environment. You can use different materials to kind of help you stage, get your thinking together and then stage it in a way that invites other people to add to it, which might be a hard thing for an introvert, like someone who's really introverted and new to the industry to kind of come to grips with. Because especially if you're coming out of college and you've done all these essays where you're, sorry, done all these assignments, you're getting marked on being right and wrong and all this kind of stuff. And then you, if you take that into the advertising world, which, and most of the people that you work with will probably have that right or wrong, you know, did I get 92% for this creative brief or 89%? That attitude can distract you as well. And you, have, you, you might think that it has to be your work as opposed to you being a channel for other people's thoughts whether you're doing research and interviews and you're channeling their thoughts, whether you're reading academic papers, financial analysis, you're channeling their thoughts or your teammates. So hopefully there are a few things there that are useful. Smooth 95.3, smooth 95.3, dunks. How much does tertiary education matter? Do you have an undergrad degree? I, that's a, so the first part of that question is difficult to answer. Because tertiary education tends to be a 
thing that people look for. I mean, I did a Bachelor of Commerce in Sydney, didn't really enjoy the education. In the mid-90s, I wanted to actually do some kind of research project on music and the internet. And I walked up to the, I don't know, I don't know what we called them back then, the professor, and said that, that I was interested in doing a little bit more study, studying the music and the internet because of MP3s, etc. Didn't get into it much more than that. And he just looked at me and said, that's not academic enough. And that was kind of the only thing that I really wanted to do in, in my time in, in university or college. Looking back at it, maybe could have done something too with literature and, and writing, but was that wasn't really, like doing it something with art wasn't really something I was, that I contemplated. Everyone just made jokes about how people would do those degrees and just be poor. And that's a topic that, and I know I've mentioned this book a bunch of times, big advocate for it, that it's a topic that Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way goes into, how we kind of get shooed away or shamed from doing the things that, like, I've got tens of journals and rap books and drawing, like books of drawings and poetry and all kinds of things. It's pretty obvious that I wanted to write. <laughs> when you look back at it. Uh, but yeah, you do need to be able to feed yourself. Uh, being a writer in Australia, at least back then, was probably not a super sustainable point of view, uh, career path. So I don't, I don't know how much tertiary education matters. You know, it depends what it matters to. Because you can look at some research and you see that people who do tertiary education they tend to have better better health like sorry they tend to have better life outcomes health earnings etc it depends what you're optimizing for in the u.s i think education really does matter it's a high stakes country and there is a lot of social signaling signaling here and i do think the alumni networks they seem pretty strong you know often hearing people who've gone to different colleges catching up with people for informational interviews or coffees and giving them internships is, can be a bit of bias within the system there. So I do think it, I think it matters. I don't know what type of education matters because, or tertiary education matters because whatever you learn, study and practice, you can add. You're into hunting, there's probably something from what you've learned in that hunting world that you could apply to how you think about your career, let alone how you think about specific projects. So the question, how much does tertiary education matter? Uh, I would lean, I would say it matters. I'm trying to give you a clear answer. It matters. <laughs> how much? I'm not sure. Uh, there's a book. Oh yeah, yeah. What's it called? It's about game theory. Is it called the Art of Strategy? And it talks about game theory and MBAs. It must be eight years old, eight ten years old now, maybe more. And it talks about how especially in the US, that where an undergraduate degree was the thing that made you stand out back in the day, now the MBA for some industries becomes cost of entry that you just have to do it. But it becomes a big social signal because historically, in recent history, the people who've been able to do that MBA often came from good schools and good families and that's what the companies wanted when they were recruiting. Hopefully this stuff's changing a little bit. And the game theory suggests that a company should make an offer to somebody who's doing a full-time MBA basically as soon as they get it, whether or not they finish it, because just being accepted signals so much stuff. Access, sometimes family background, sometimes, we well, would hope, capability, uh, and then conscientiousness. 
but it's not it's not black and white. Alright. Kalisimo. What's up, Carl? Wondering about times when great creative work needs retrofitting or updating of strategy. I see no problem with this. So if I feel because also, you know, when you've written a creative brief and or, let's say you're writing creative briefs, but when you've written a creative brief and you're under pressure, under time pressure, sometimes you've written you're like, I think there's something there, but it's in the back and forth that it becomes clear. When I've interacted in more traditional creative department, strategy department situations, my bias, my initial bias is if we've agreed on a brief, because people have seen the brief before a meeting, that we want the work to adhere to it. I've got to tell you though, I think there isn't always a lot of strategic or conceptual literacy in as many agencies as we would expect. So you could write a brief where there's a good insight and there's a clean single-minded proposition or strategy statement and you put that into a creative department and they might not know what an idea is. And out can come, and let's, let's pretend that it's advertising based for the sake of it. It could be product, it could be a non-advertising idea that gets advertised, whatever you want to think of the outcome as, but just for the sake of this, let's say it's advertising. You might have a really interesting insight, trying to solve a problem, good understanding of the customer. You've, you've written a brief in a really straightforward, no jargony, no jargon kind of way, and out comes like a, a hashtag. You're like, what? What is this? So this is a difficult conversation because it depends on the philosophy of the agency and the capability of the people with whom you're working, how people see strategy and creative. But if you just pause on that and and you start with that bias that like, come on guys, we've agreed on this brief. Let's at least have work that responds to it. But then if something amazing does come back, then it is a bit of a problem, isn't it? Because you will feel, you can feel, it, it just depends how you see your job. If your job is about getting great work out into the public world that helps your client, then does it really matter? Will it feel like a slight on your ego to update the strategy? Has the client already seen and signed off the strategy? Did you do it in a day or was it a nine-month committee-oriented process? But if something's good, I think, I think it needs to be honored. But, you know, sometimes there are creative teams who aren't conceptually trained. Some are, but they hate strategy. Some are, but they think they do the strategy. And sometimes they can. So that's where this question gets a little bit awkward. And it does come down to a very project-by-project level. Dogyorn, do you have a favorite framework when creating a brand? So when I'm working with companies on creating brands, I probably don't spend as much time talking about the problem we need to solve about that brand, because it might be unknown, in people's minds. So you, if, if the brand's been around for a little bit of time, I will quite, if I don't have a lot of, and if I don't have a lot of time, I spend most of my effort thinking through and analyzing and researching for the problems as in the the human problem behind the business problem which is typically some kind of barrier in people's mind minds an obstacle something we want to get them over or through so that they change how they see us or the, the category and then change their behaviors and essentially reorganize their lives 
And if I'm working with a company that's, it can actually be a little difficult working with people who are just starting out because sometimes they're a bit scared and overwhelmed. Sometimes they just have a ton of thoughts and ideas and they don't want to let any of them go. And maybe they're not used to what we would call strategy, where so much of strategy is letting things go and committing to a thing. Even the stuff that I do is pretty broad. You know, I've, I've helped CEOs write presentations. There are companies that just do that. There are companies that just do training. There are people who just create you know, podcasts and books and things like that. framework itself I'm not you know I, I do I've got a little you can find it on Instagram actually it's a drawing funnily enough it's got uh, probably got a photo of Pharrell Williams I think on that one and I'm just looking I'm laying out things that you would all lay out I don't know if there's anything different about it everything from you know I do like a vision and a mission statement but those things are super airy and weird until you explain what they are and you, you don't, I don't see too many of those that are interesting and good. They're usually big corporate speak that takes ages for a company to agree to. Then they put it up behind the reception or put it up in the lobby and people walk by it going, I don't know what that means. So I'd usually do vision, mission, the problem that we try to solve, where that would be some kind of lateral thought. Yeah, we get uh, brand promise, brand values, enemies, tone, behaviors, perceptual target. Then you put in some kind of set of shapes. Next question, mindfulness by design. Is it ever okay for the human truth to be different to the consumer truth? Everything's okay. Is it ever okay for the human truth to be different to the consumer truth? Yeah, like as long as they're, you know, think about it like scenes in a movie where the scenes need some kind of connection. You know, if you've got some human truth, which I guess means a non-consumer truth, such as when men lose their life partners, they tend to die younger than women who lose their life partners. That's a human truth. It's not about toothbrushes. So then if if there's then a consumer truth, you would expect it to connect to the men dying younger in some way that's also that also connects to the product and then you would need to steer if you're working with a creative team the creative team on which particular truth that you want to see in the work because you you want the insight to travel in the work so that's where it can be confusing so as long as there's a connection and as long as it's clear what needs to travel in the work, then it's totally okay. You can have 10 to 15 different truths. You know, I once uh, wrote up something for Amstel. They were launching a product in Australia and it was just a page and it just had like a series of truths, human, consumer, multiple consumer truths, how the drink was drunk, where it was drunk, when it wasn't drunk. It's just a list, and then it kind of got to a, a, a brand strategy. So it's all doable. Whatever works, right? 
What's the most common thing strategists get wrong from Sheldon LT? What's the most common thing strategists get wrong? The need to be right. I think that's the most common thing strategists get wrong. The need to be right. And it'll come as no surprise that I also think it's getting lost in big grandstanding words that nobody uses outside the office. And when you need to be right and you use words that make no sense, what kind of game are you playing? Edwin Rager, or as I call him, Edwin Rager. What's up, man? Uh, when do you know it's time to move on from a certain job or level of responsibility? I don't have a very good answer to this. You know, I've, I've bounced around a little bit. I kind of fell into the industry, enjoyed it. I'm enjoying it more than ever, actually, what I'm doing now. Uh, but I'm not really an employee, I don't think. You know, I started my own magazine when I was 19 or 20. I've done a lot of events and everything. And I think the main reason that I ended up going full-time was because my relationship was settling down and at a young age and we had kids at a young age. Uh, and I've I learned a lot. I've had a lot of good experiences, a lot of bizarre, tough, strange, toxic experiences as well. But I don't really know when it's time to move on from a certain job. You're just going to make it up anyway. You know, if if... if if you feel really out of alignment with yourself and you can financially or emotionally afford to take a risk, then maybe you change. Maybe you do need to stick it out. It just depends. Like if you're working with an abusive boss in, a, in an abusive company with clients who are abusive, which I've seen, <laughs> yeah, maybe you should just get over it and keep working. Maybe not. I don't know. Because <laughs> you could say that to someone and we can point to articles in, uh, on websites over the years about agencies that imploded when that kind of stuff was happening. It's such a difficult thing to work through. It's so personal. I do think it's important to recognize, well, hang on, to, to ensure that you're practicing and, and developing yourself, that you're reading, that you're writing, drawing, whatever you're into, that you've always got that. I do think it's important to tend to your social relationships. I'm not great at that. But I think it's good to, it's important to do that. It depends if you have them. It depends if your family's a mess or if it's stable as well. You just don't want to neglect that. Trying to work out what goals would make sense of your next six months, next 12 months, next five years, next 10 years. That's important. Every now and then, you know, I did an interview with Sudeep Gohill which you can hear, and he, he talks about, he, I think a lot of the jobs he's had, he's, he's hung around for about five years. He just said it, was, said it was a good amount of years, and I agree. Because in our industry, especially in the younger ages, I think a year and a half, I've seen different statistics from different places, but it's like eight people on average stay, what is it, a year and a half or so? If you've got statistics on that, feel free to share them with me. Uh, here's the thing that is that makes some of this more complicated is that people who do move around and I don't know who gets to decide how much moving is too much but people who do move around tend to earn more money over a 10 year period or whatever it is some research on that too you know that I often forget my research sources but I remember reading that once uh, Juicy or you see Hakkinen the best or worst reactions you hope for or fear when presenting an insight I really do li try to listen for sounds and look for a sense of like startlement and excitement 
and then seduction. You know when the eyes just widen because people are a little bit shocked and then the eyes calm down and they might have chortled or giggled or snot, you know, snot might have flown across the table? That's what I look for. If the eyes just blink at you and you think that that's a continuation of a pretty normal culture where people just don't want to accept things that are weird and different, like there's no desire to understand the thing, that's what I fear the most. Because I get nervous that that means that whatever we come back with, if it's in the same genre of, here's something you hadn't heard before, that the audience won't want to hand, won't want to deal with it because they want something they've heard before, something that's corporate. We all see these marketing decks flying around with insights on them, and often they've come from really good researchers and good marketing teams. But I, I don't often understand them. The, I don't like the language is pretty can be pretty businessy, and they sometimes it just looks like the other document you looked at last week, or it's the same from the year before. It's been copied and pasted. So the worst reaction is for there to be no desire to understand it. The best reaction is really to see a desire to understand it, but with some kind of shock, you know, pleasant shock. Like, oh. It's very similar to stand-up comedy in my mind. G. Calicurus, have people's attitudes to youth soccer <laughs> changed in recent years in America? So if you haven't listened to this before, I spent a bit of time around the youth soccer world. And all over, well definitely all over the northeast of the USA and sometimes in other parts of the USA and it's pretty amazing, there's so much talent in the, in the, in the States uh, the other day, Gio Reyna I think he's 16 he, his dad's the, I think the technical director Claudio Reyna is the technical director or academy director at NYCFC basically runs the must be technical because it's of the whole club and yeah, his son was playing for Borussia Dortmund in Indiana against Liverpool at the age of 16. I think he's the captain of the U17 US team. You got pulled. There's all the, anyway, I'm not going to list all these names, but it's so exciting. There are a lot of US players in Germany, some in England. Pool sick. Just moved to Chelsea. Hopefully you get some time. Uh, youth soccer is intense in America. So for those of you who aren't here, you probably know that sport and competition in America is a big thing. You've probably seen documentaries, TV shows about American football, what we all call American football or what Americans call football at college. But some of these things are huge. Like if you go down to, I think LSU, Louisiana State University against, I'll say Mississippi or Alabama or Texas. Is it the Texas Longhorns? Those things get, I'm going to say like 100, 150,000 people in town for these events. The stadiums can't, I don't think the stadiums can fit that many people, but they fit close to six figures. Maybe there's one or two that, that do fit more than that. But with all the tailgating, where people eat and drink at the back of their cars before a game or during a game, the pubs, like these, these things are huge cultural events. It's incredible. There's huge pressure on kids in sport. And the, the big thing that I see with soccer, because there's a lot of politics in this with the different organizations, the way they work, the professional clubs, they don't have promotion relegation. So you can't win your way into the top league and you don't lose your way out of it it's protected the argument there is that the, the clubs have invested so much money and they need some kind of protection but it's kind of funny when America protects companies at times as well like it does seem ironic uh, but there's a lot of pressure on, on, soccer, on youth soccer players 
because it can mean that you're not going to college and coming out with like a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollar debt. Whatever the number is, it's huge. I have heard that a lot of people do get some kind of scholarship going to college here, but sport will get you a pretty good scholarship. Uh, one of the, so what I was saying is actually that one of the big conflicts or challenges that I think happens, is, especially in New York, is that you have very... Because it's pay to play. It's quite expensive. If you're in New York and you're playing in a club, you're probably spending anywhere from two to $4,000 a year. Some people do private lessons. You've got all the driving. There are two, three-day tournaments. When they, sometimes when the kids can barely even pass the ball, I don't think that's a good use of time or money. A lot of the clubs do also offer scholarships as well and take pride in that. So it's not just pay-to-play, but pay-to-play is, is definitely a thing. And one of the biggest conflicts that I, can, I think that comes from that, especially in the Northeast, is that you get these really successful parents, 40s and 50s, with kids who are under 10. It's uh, definitely an older parenting base. And they didn't grow up with soccer. They don't know the game, they don't watch the game as families and they want their kids to be the best because they, they're the best in their industries so they expect their kids to be the best but they don't understand that it's, you don't turn up to training two or three times a week play a game and then become the best <laughs> like you need to be playing every day with friends and have unstructured time and structured play you need to be training at a very high level that's how you get good at this stuff so I think that's the I guess that's an attitude That the attitude is that they expect they, they, they ex- a lot of people a lot of successful people expect to be able to buy their kids success in sport and in youth soccer and don't really understand how to actually help someone get good but it's it's big you know you see 90,000 people go to I think 90,000 people went to a game in Texas to watch Mexico and Croatia and often the games that feature Mexico or Mexican stars in the US have the biggest turnouts Seattle Sounders professional club they've got a very I think top four top five youth academy and their weekly or regular attendance in their games, I think it's top 20 in the world. So it's pretty amazing. It's intense. It's intense. There's a few questions from, uh, like I said, I'm not going to do people's names because I'm not on Wi-Fi and I'd have to bounce back and forth and it just takes time. The phone gets a little bit uh, clunky bouncing between the different pieces of software, the different apps. Favorite rap artist, Mihao Idzi. Uh, I don't really have favorites, but I've had a couple of awesome chats recently in Ubers and in hotel bars. I, had, I was in an Uber in LA on the way back from the Strategy Supersize Omega class or on the way to the airport, and I was talking to a guy who produced rap albums and knew some of the people I knew. It just depends on mood. You know, I was pretty into groups like uh, The Hieroglyphics, Project Blowed, Anticon company flow and then you there were these sort of mixtapes or cassettes eps that would get out by people that, that would get put out by people that stuck with me there's this track by third sight rhymes like a scientist i think it has like a two-minute introduction i love that i was probably more drawn to the crews that came out of scribble jam or in the mid to late 90s is that the mid to late to late 90s or a little bit later what a lot of people refer to as backpack rap. Most deaf was probably not Scribble Jam. I'm sure it was there, but like that. Uh, Raucous Records, Fondulum Records. It's a lot of history there. But I, I tend not to have favorite favorites. 
I think L- I really do respect LP. Uh, and also Slug from Atmosphere, but LP, because he's in that, what's that group, Run Then Jewels? Oh my gosh. Oh, have I forgotten it already? But he was in Company Flow as well. I interviewed him. And he said it was the most psychological interview he'd ever done. I was about, I don't know, 27. And yeah, I respect his artistry. Another question. When you're good at the idea creation process but stuck at, or but suck at execution, how do you show value to others? When you're good at the idea creation process but suck at execution, how do you show value to others? Well, one would hope that ideas are valued. And I know there's a lot of stuff that gets put on Twitter and LinkedIn about ideas aren't are nothing. Ideas are nothing without execution. Yeah, cool. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but ideas are also worth something. doesn't mean that they are nothing. It's just that they need execution. The word nothing in that sentence is its cheeky. It's a little slap in the face. When you're good at the idea creation process but suck at execution, how do you show value to others? Well, you need to ensure that the ideas are good, that people can understand the ideas readily, and perhaps show first steps in how the idea could come to life. If you are pitching in an agency and people are buying ideas, then you are showing value. So that's one way of showing value. If you're just spraying stuff up on a wall, hoping someone thinks you're amazing at some point, you're not being accountable, and the ideas aren't great, you're just wasting people's time. Or, you know what, just do that work maybe in private or with a small group and only reveal something that you think is really, really good and hopefully there's good creative leadership that can help you pull out the thing in that. Next one. Got any advice on doing good interviews for research and making sense of them? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have a... I will publish some of this. I've put up little things, uh, questions that I like to ask. You know, so the way that I work is I usually do interviews over the phone, one-on-one. And I do enjoy it, but I think I do it a little bit more as a, like with a journalistic mindset where I'm trying to hear words that I haven't heard before that shock me a little bit or startle me a little bit or please me. And they want me to stew on them. And so I do have a pretty set way of doing interviews. It's, it's flexible. I will interview stakeholders. I will interview customers. An average project, for example, might involve, you know, I'm not, a per- I'm not personally a huge fan of doing like six month research projects. They're completely, or more, they're, they're totally cool. But it's not really how I like to work or how I get brought in. What I'm usually doing is trying to top up existing data. And most companies I work with have so much research, so many decks, so many pieces of data. And I use interviews just to try to pierce my way through it all. So I'm not sort of swallowing the noise, if that makes sense. I don't know what that means. If that makes any sense. And so I'll interview a CEO or a CMO probably for two to three hours if I can get them. It can take a little bit of time to talk them through their own sound bites. If they've watched TED Talks, you start to hear certain language pop up, for example, and it's like, hang on, is that you or did you read that somewhere? And there's a bunch of questions that I like to ask. Uh, And then when I'm interviewing, and and then I might interview four or five of their staff or their employees for about 45 minutes. You never know which interviews are going to go well or not go well. There are people who won't talk, and it's not always the person in finance. Sometimes there are super passionate people in finance, but that's, that's the one that I'm like, ah, oh, is anything going to come out of this? And sometimes it really does. I love that. And then interviewing customers or consumers, 
and that word does mean different things in different customers uh, in different companies where a customer for some companies might actually mean their b2b customer the business that buys from them and their consumer is basically the end consumer the person who uses the product and typically you're just going through attitudes and usage questions there and i think the graduation has been i wrote about this recently and talking to younger strategists who don't always get to do research or get to do interviews they're just collecting stuff from the internet I think there's a phase where you you collect information about the company, about the category, because you're trying to understand it. But if you just do that in interviews, I don't know if... I think you're wasting a bit of time. Then you go to... Oh, what did I actually write? Collecting information. Then you start to try to collect... Hmm. Maybe I'll call it wisdom and confessions. Or maybe it's attitudes. You go from information, then you go to, well, what do you think about that? Great. You've told me that X percent of this thing happens on Friday. Cool. You write that down. What do you think of that? Then you start to get to attitudes. And then you start to get to questions like, well, why is that important? Why isn't the other thing important? Where you're trying to elicit some kind of insight or wisdom. And then you might graduate. I don't mean to be patronizing saying this, like there's some weird graduation process to this, but you might graduate to extracting confessions from people. So let me see if I can do this out loud. I haven't done this before, so who knows if this will make sense. So X percent of spiders do this thing on Friday. That's cool. That's information. Why is that important? Well, when they do this thing on Friday, it means that it's about to rain. And when it rains, people don't drink beer. Okay. Hang on. Then what did I say was going to happen? We're trying to get to um, wisdom. So how does the company deal with that? How does your restaurant deal with that? I'm sitting across from a, a bar. <laughs> uh, how does the restaurant deal with that? Well, we, we switch out our... Uh, that's more an implication than wisdom. Like we, we start selling different drinks, or we, we change the design, we change the lighting, or we make it feel warm and not wet, or we make it feel wet and sell other things. Uh, I don't know. And then you might get to a confession, which is, I don't know how I could really apply it to what I just said. This is the trouble with thinking out loud. It doesn't always make sense. Uh, well, what's something that you've never told people about that situation or the spiders and, and beer on Friday that has been on your mind for a long time? Or what's something that makes you angry about that? And then you start to... Or could you tell me something you've never told someone before? Did I just say that? Could you tell someone... Could you tell me something you've never told someone before? Sorry, I've got all these people around me now. They keep trying to cramp cramp me. And I don't know how... Uh, it's, it's not like I'm walking around Central Park right now and I can pretend that I'm on a conference call. I'm just in a, in a park talking English in a foreign country. All right. I hope that, I hope that kind of made sense. Uh, not... Zach Shogren. On any given project, do you wonder, what if I'm wrong all the time? I do. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I think about whether I'm right or wrong. I just think about whether it's any good. Have I heard this before? This is crap. This is boring. Could I work with this myself? Excuse me. So I don't really think about being right or wrong. I just think about w whether it's useful and interesting and provocative and whether it will work. Anonymous question, how can I grow in strategy without a boss or a good boss? I think it's always important to take responsibility for your own self-development. Reading, writing, teaching, talking. 
if you're working crazy hours, could you do one of those things? Write, teach, talk. Could you choose one of those three things every three months and do it? Because, as you've heard me say before, you have to think about what you think, commit to it, write it down. It'll, by writing it, you'll probably get better at it. Your writing is very much about rewriting, so it should improve your language. You'll then have little ideas and sound bites that you can go do in your next meetings. You put it out in public. Hopefully, you attract new interesting people into your life. might lead to more opportunities, and away you go. So definitely take responsibility for your own self-development there's a lot of online courses youtube's incredible right now just if you're just interested in philosophy and psychology you can spend weeks on youtube there are all these amazing channels one of my favorite is the academy of ideas you can check that out is strategy different in europe compared to australia usa and uk matt jsca probably difficult to really say i think in general strategy is is just crazy suffering in many places under the weight of execution and shrinking margins so when I get around there are people doing strategy but it's often a transaction of a lot of information data and then a whole bunch of tactics what I would call to like status tactics statistics and tactics there are going to be different spins on it in different places. I'd imagine in the UK, a lot of presentations probably start with some amazing quote from a, a classic philosopher. <laughs> you sort of see that in a lot of the award entries and the, the articles as well. That's cool. It's an English way to do it. Don't quite see that in the US. And was it... Oh, so we were talking about this on Twitter the other day. Was it, was it Eugene Huang again? Someone said, I was like, what's the equivalent of doing that in the US? So what's the equivalent in the US of the UK dropping in like a classic philosopher quote to start a presentation? And I think it was Eugene, but someone said it's uh, an animated GIF. <laughs> a silly animated GIF. So yeah, it's, look, it's, it's different, but it's also, it depends on the type of agency you're in, the type of company that you're in. What they think strategy is, whether it's important, whether they, whether they can charge for it, whether their clients want to pay for it, whether their clients think they've got business consultants or yeah, management consultants in there and they do the strategy and the agency just makes things look a certain way. Andrew G. Clayton asks, I'm moving to Europe in a couple of years. What can I expect to be different in different strategy roles? So similar, I put these together uh, for a reason. It's, it's tough. I don't know really how to answer this. You know, I talk to people who are expats in different parts of the world. Sometimes they struggle because the city seems a bit more introverted or it's not as energetic as they hoped. It's harder to make friends and the workplace might not be as friend-oriented as, as parts of America. You know, I do think, uh, cli- is it a cliche? A stereotype about the German, working in Germany, for example, is this is a stereotype. What? Like I've read it in business books that people get in Germany, they go to work not to make friends, it's just to work. Whereas in the US, especially in New York, because a lot of people in the, in the agencies with the young workforce, they've moved there from other places. And they're trying to establish social lives as well as business lives, professional lives. Uh, and then the, the other stereotypes, I'm trying, I'm trying, for some reason, because I'm near Germany, I'm thinking about Germany a little bit France can be more hierarchical and more logical it can be more top down from some stuff I've seen Australia Holland Sweden Norway tend to be more circular just in the business culture so more a company of peers 
and that can frustrate people in some parts because it, sometimes a decision can't be made unless everyone agrees. So that can frustrate people and that's how the role can be different. But otherwise I think it's suffering from the same challenges everywhere. And by suffering, I don't mean to say that it's you know, dying and, and it's not in a good place. I, I think there's a lot of vibrant thinking out there. Uh, this is from the Rob Major, Rob Grundle. What did you learn from writing raps that makes it wa its way into strategy work? I uh, wouldn't want to glamorize my time writing raps at all, but you know you have to be concise and you're continually looking for patterns. And if you if you write poetry, lyrics, raps, you're constantly looking for stimulus, and then you have a practice. You write. You know, I probably had phases where nearly every day I would write a page or two of poetry or rap when I was young. So I think it's those three things. Concision, plain language for the most part, a regular practice. And then with any art, you start with all the cliche stuff and you hope to get through it into something new. So a lot of the young, a lot of the young bucks might start with their battle raps. And then over time, maybe they it's not even a graduation, but I'll call it a graduation. They'll graduate into more of like a lyricist or a quote-unquote storyteller. So there's an interview with Earthboy, Tim Levinson, recently. You can hear how he thinks about that. I, lo I love this theme we got onto that as an artist, you are what you haven't yet done. It's a beautiful thought. And maybe even just thinking about all writing, business writing, or the type of writing that we do in strategy is some kind of art form. What's wrong with that? Uh, Amanda Kay, does anxiety and depression help you be a more creative thinker? So I don't know if that's a general question or if you're asking me, because I do experience those things from time to time. And I, am, I would, this is something that I want to spend a bit more time looking at the science, looking through the science of, does or do anxiety and depression help you think more creatively? There's definitely a school of thought that depression is a form of rumination and people are like, well, why does that exist from an evolutionary perspective? Why do people ruminate? Why do they withdraw? And sometimes it is like that. Sometimes you can come back with interesting epiphanies about your life or about the world. But I would like to think that you don't need to have anxiety and depression to be creative. Like I don't think that there are must have Mm. Let me ponder that one a little bit more. I've read about it. I just don't know. I feel like I could be reckless with what I would say. Do read the book Creativity by Mahaley. Uh, the guy who talked about flow. And I think his second name was like Cheska Mahaley. This book came out, I think around 1996. I think it came out in the 1990s. And he looks at the creative lives of a lot of people. He's got some principles in there, things that he found. It's really interesting. So that, that might help few more questions we got four four more questions so Laura Evelancy strategizing for tackling the climate crisis via marketing we'll love your thoughts yeah it's a pretty big one just to drop in there I think with anything like this it's about understanding the specific things you need to change and the specific communities who think about these things and how they need to change I think earlier today I, I saw someone tweeting about farmers in Australia who are voting against some kind of climate change legislation or was supporting a politician who was and some people were like that seems really ironic because you know the farms are the first thing that's going to go 
but shame is not the tool. I know shame, shame has survived evolution and history because it's useful. It must be useful. And maybe it's not useful on the individual, but it's a signal that we send to other people that, if, that they risk getting shamed if they behave a certain way. So it's not about the individual changing. But if you look into research or listen to academics who've, who've researched the space talk about it, shame tends to make people defend, triggers their brain, turns on defense mechanism. But I think it's about understanding the individuals and the way that they think about the world and communicating with them on common ground about how they see the world, not you lecturing them from the outside. Just I don't, from what I've read and heard, I just don't think that's the way to do it. Sarah Murray, why can't strategists strategize their own lives? I'm sure some can. I mean, I'm in Amsterdam and I'm reminded of Heather Lefevre, who did, we did an interview about this because she has tried to strategize her life. You can listen to her tell it. But we just, you know, we're looking for that next hit, I think, a lot of the time because we're interested in novelty and variety. We're looking for the next thing. So we're just waiting for the next project and maybe having a, a job code for the timesheets and a title to go with it makes us feel official and then we just risk doing work only when it's official as opposed to doing it for ourselves. It's difficult to know yourself and it takes time. Even when I hear psychologists talk about individuation and philosophers talk about individuation, the process of becoming who you are, I don't want to get this wrong. Maybe it's in the 30s and 40s. You know, you do hear people talk about how they hit their 40s and 50s and like, you know what, <laughs> this is who I am. I'm locking it in. Hopefully I can change a little bit and improve, but the bulk of these things m might not change. So what am I going to do? How am I going to work with that? But I, I think it's that we, I, th I think a lot of strategists don't strategize their own lives because they're naturally attracted to variety and novelty. And a lot of the, th a lot of the things that they naturally are, there's not everyone, but a lot of the, th the things and that they're naturally interested in, the way the ways that they are i don't think society i don't think we've done a good job of saying hey no they're normal for some people you don't have to turn them off you don't have to fit into the world the way that it's been constructed and then the second point is really about legitimacy that we think we need to do it when it's important work and maybe we're not important enough to do it or we just get caught up in achieving in, in front of other people rather than thinking about ourselves Dogyorn asks, uh, I've used P-I-E-S, PIES, so that's the problem, insight, edge, or advantage strategy, little drawing thing, framework that I do. So he's used this to help uh, his wife manage her staff. Do I have a favorite non-coms application at PIES? Sort of. I don't, I don't know if I've really got a, non, a favorite, but I do think about the imposter syndrome thing because that does pop up a little bit and trying to use that, and I've drawn that up, it's on the internet. But thinking of imposter syndrome maybe you've got it maybe you don't do you need to have it I don't know but just thinking about it as a, a way that you're whispering to yourself that you you care and you want to do better final question what would you say to an immigrant strategist trying to find work in a new country it's a loaded question I think you've got to work out how to make all of your or as much of your work history relevant to that new country as possible so they don't dismiss it I think it helps to have projects that connect to that country as well just side projects that you've done, things that you're interested in to show that you're committed, that you're sticking around. So I think there's a, a nervousness that if you get hired, 
first of all, that you might not relate. Second of all, that it's going to take you ages to actually understand that country and you're going to, be, you're going to keep coming back with quote-unquote insights that everybody talks about. An example that I used to hear from Dave McCoggan, who I think was like head of strategy in Asia for McCann Erickson for a long time, is that a lot of young, like new planners to China back in the day would go, yeah, it's, it's the little emperor syndrome something like that as an insight because they just because there was like you know one kid in so many families and all the generations doted on this child but if you're Dave and you're hiring planners all the time and you hear it all the time it's just not interesting so working out how to get somewhere new different maybe instead of just turning up it also depends on language but instead of just turning up with your CV do your own little research report about a part of that country or a group of people all right, they're the questions. Anyway, so we're going to push over 200,000 listens with this. Appreciate you listening. Come check me out on uh, Instagram at Mark Pollard. Do have a bunch of strategy articles up at markpollard.net. And if you're coming to the Strategy Supersize Omega class with Julian Colson, looking forward to meeting you. Enjoy your summers if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. Peace.